In every trial, there are several individuals. When we think of the courtroom, the trials that are adjudicated, there is, of course, the judge who has been tasked with the responsibility to properly follow the law of the land, to make sure that there is a fair trial. There is, of course, the prosecutor who is there to prosecute the crime, that is, whatever the charges are, their responsibility is to make sure that the facts are presented in such a way that leads to a guilty verdict. Then, of course, there is the defendant, who often in our modern judicial system has lawyers who defend their case to ensure that their rights are protected and that the law is adhered to and naturally, of course, to adjudicate in such a way to prove the the innocence of the defendant. Well, as we think about a modern-day trial where facts are presented in a case and where prosecutors seek to prove to the judge or to a impaneled jury in order to prove the charges that are laid against the defendant. With that in mind, we're going to lay that thought over our text this morning. In fact, I believe that Luke and the other gospel writers have organized their material in such a way as to have, if you were, a mock trial of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, of course, this isn't the official trial that will uh, take place later on in the final week of Jesus' earthly ministry when he is tried before Pontius Pilate and tried before the, the Jewish Sanhedrin. However, this is an earlier mock trial to, if you will, do the preliminary work, some preliminary interviews with Jesus, and to see if they can gain enough facts in their case in order to prove his guilt. Of course, early on in Luke's gospel, we learned that the scribes and Pharisees, the religious leaders, were seeking to entrap Jesus, to trip him up. And what we find in these final chapters of Luke's gospel is that they double down on their efforts. They want to get Jesus any way they can. And so they begin to lay numerous traps for Jesus to fall into. They try to trip him up in his words, trip him up in his actions. Hey, why are you doing this with your disciples? Hey, disciples, why is your, does your leader do these things? They tried to trip him up in uh, bringing false accusations even as we'll see in the weeks ahead as we look at the actual trial of Jesus, they bring false witnesses uh, in uh, to bear false witness, uh, to lie, and they couldn't get their stories to agree. All of this predicated upon Old Testament teaching that an accusation must have at least two or three witnesses in order for it to be properly judged upon. Friends, with all of this in mind, what we see is that the religious leaders have been backed in a corner by Jesus. You'll be reminded that just a number of days earlier in this final week, Jesus had entered the temple and began to turn over tables and throw out the money changers, no doubt creating a massive scene. 
Jesus was wildly popular by this point. He had done all he could to tamp down the messianic fervor that began to rage. Everything was at a fever pitch. But on top of that, it was the Passover. It was the time in the nation of Israel when all would begin to make their pilgrimage to Jerusalem in order to present their annual sacrifices. And so the streets were brimming with people. Homes were filled with aunts and uncles and distant relatives coming in from all over the known world to Jerusalem at this particular time. And then, for the religious leaders, they had a nuisance of a problem. His name was Jesus. And they were tired of him unsettling the status quo. You see, the religious leaders had created a quite nice situation for them. Though they didn't like Rome, they found that they could make a profit off of Rome. And so it was a love-hate relationship between the Israelites, and particularly the established leaders, and the Roman government that had come in many years earlier and set up operation. And so the religious leaders want to make sure that Jesus doesn't upset the apple cart, if you will. That he doesn't unsettle this really sweet deal that they have worked out with Pilate and the rest of the religious leaders. More than that, they tried as best as they could to tamp down any type of revolt. A number of years earlier, a a man named Judas had tried to start a revolt and in which the entire city was thrown into upheaval and the the Romans had to bring their armies down and tamp it down. Hundreds were killed and uh, they were able to put a stop to it. And of course, the religious leaders are are trying to get Jesus under control so that he doesn't lead some sort of revolt that ultimately leads to them losing their power and position. They've laid their traps. They've spun their webs of lies. And at every point, Jesus evades their traps. And what we're going to see today and why we thought about the wisdom of God in songs like Be Thou My Vision or in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is because what we find is that the, the best of the best, the, the brightest that the world could offer had been assembled in Jerusalem in order to thwart Jesus. But at every turn, Jesus proved himself to be wiser than the wisest man. That what Luke recorded all the way back in chapter 2 about how Jesus grew in stature, how he grew in the knowledge of God and in wisdom and the fear of God, when it comes to full fruition as the God-man arrives in Jerusalem and begins to dismantle the entire Jewish religious system. I want to remind you again why Luke is writing. He is writing to Christians just like you and just like me. He's writing to a friend of his named Theophilus. And he's writing to convince him, uh, uh, to give him assurance, if you will, of the things that he's come to know and believe. Now imagine you're a Christian in the first century. Decades have gone past since Jesus uh, was killed since he was raised since he ascended 
and you wonder why the entire Jewish sacrificial system is being dismantled. Why it seems as if the entire structure of the temple and all that was going on there begins to vanish. It's because, as we'll see today, Jesus was inaugurating a new era of redemptive history. The old was going away and the new was coming. And so we see a sense of tension between the old and the new, between what was and what will be. Friend, with that in mind, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20, and we're going to begin in verse 20. Now, if you have your ESV open, you'll, you'll notice that the ESV translators have broken the chapter or the verses at 19. And 19 seems to function as a sort of transition between what we considered last week, Jesus is confronting these religious leaders, pushing against them, you know, provoking them, if you will, and then verse 20, which then seems to begin uh, the, this next uh, scene in that day's ministry as Jesus continues uh, to have interaction with these religious leaders. So remember, Jesus has just told a scathing parable against them, uh, essentially saying that they are going to be cast out of the kingdom and that he's going to invite Gentiles into the kingdom. They are at the top of their anger. That You can't push them any further. And then he, write, then he says this, verse 20. Luke records, so they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able, in the presence of the people, to catch him. In what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife with but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. The second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore, because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. 
but that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. For they no longer dared to ask him any questions. But Jesus said to them, How can they say that the Christ is the son of David? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus called him Lord. So how is it he's his son? And in the hearing of all the people, he said to the disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces and best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at the feast who devour widows' houses and for pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. Jesus looked up and saw the rich putting their gifts into the offering box. and saw a poor widow put in two small copper coins. And he said, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of them. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. Well, friends, we've organized this together because we believe that they all fit together. That Jesus' main overarching point in gathering this material together is to drive home this. That Jesus is the sovereign Lord worthy of our total devotion to Him as King. In this mock trial, if you will, uh, we see that Jesus and His ideas are put on trial. And at every turn, Jesus demonstrates that He is the authoritative King who has come to deliver His people. That He is the one whom our knees should bow in worship and adoration. We see the religious establishment rejecting Jesus and His authority. And we see the disciples called to devotion to Christ. And then we see there finally that wonderful example, a picture of what it looks to go all in with Jesus. What it looks like to be devoted to Jesus as our King. We see a number of things here, so if you take notes, I'll break it down for you. First, in verse 20 through 26, we see that Jesus is challenged on his understanding and relationship to civil government. Now, we're going to get into a little bit, but not much of the weeds here, but, but at the heart of the question in verses 20 through 27, is, or 26 rather, is how can Jesus be king and Caesar be king? How do we reconcile as Christians uh, a loyalty to Jesus and a loyalty to our own government? Jesus unknots this knot. Then we see, secondly, this confrontation brought to us by the Sadducees, there in verse 27 through 40, where they try to trip Jesus up over the matter of the resurrection. How is it that Jesus is Lord over eternity? And Jesus demonstrates and teaches clearly His Lordship. Then finally, we'll see in verses 44 through 46, Jesus turns their own questioning on themselves and, and ask them a question. They try to trap him, and so he traps them 
in probably the most dangerous trap that they could find themselves in, and that is acknowledging the Davidic king and his relationship to God. So we're going to consider these, this, these challenges to Jesus' authority. And so first we see in verses 20 through 26, Jesus is challenged or questioned about taxes. Now to be clear, as I sort of introduced you uh, to these first few verses, of course they don't mean any of what they're asking, right? Luke records for us, the other gospel writers tell us their motives. Their motives are not to learn, but to trip up. It's a reminder of what we considered last week, that hard-hearted people can't hear the truth. They were not seeking to grow in knowledge. They were not seeking to uh, come to have a relationship with Jesus. They were seeking simply to, to trap Jesus in such a way as to, as Luke says, turn him over to the authorities and jurisdiction of the governor. And they came up with a marvelous idea, uh, quite wise on their part. What did they do? Well, essentially, they wanted Jesus to go on record against the Roman government. They wanted Jesus to announce that his allegiance was to God alone and not to Caesar as Lord. They wanted to acknowledge, they wanted Jesus to publicly profess that he had come to overthrow the Roman government. Now, of course, if we were reading our Old Testament, we would see various passages where we learn that when the Messiah comes, he will come as a victorious king and he will will destroy all of God's enemies and he will set up an eternal kingdom to which there will be no end. And we believe that and we affirm that. But what we found is that Jesus didn't come on a mighty white horse, but he came on a beast of burden, on a fowl sitting, because he came to bring peace, not war. But that he was coming again. And when he comes again is when he will bring war. But he did not come this first time to overthrow Roman governments, to overthrow sovereign nations. But he came to subtly undermine governments in a way that the seen eye cannot see. To subvert government and power in ways that were beyond the human eye. And so they ask him, show Tell us, do you have loyalty to Caesar? How can we have loyalty to God and loyalty to Caesar at the same time? And what does Jesus do? You might know it well. He asked for a coin, a denarius. This would have amounted to about a day's wages. He wanted to see this coin. And on that coin would have been an inscription of Caesar. And he says, whose image is on the coin And of course they say, well, of course, it's Caesar's. It's his money. And he says, then give him his money. You see, Caesar had enacted a poll tax, a tax on the the people. It was estimated to be around 40% of a day's wages, a significant, no doubt, tax. You you and I complain about our taxes. Uh, Imagine an occupying army coming in. and Well, what did those taxes go to? What did they say? Well, it went to their protection, the armies that were there. It went to fund the government. And Jesus is saying, give to, give to the governing authorities that which is theirs, and give to God that which is his. Now look, look with me what he says. 
He says, whose likeness and inscription does it have? Whose image is on this? Well, it's Caesar's image. Okay, well, then give it to Caesar. And notice what he does. He, he subtly undermines Caesar by saying, and give to God the things that are God's. Well, what's God's? Well, friend, it is, is the very people that were standing there. They were created in the image of God. They bore His image. Just as that little coin bore the image of Caesar's, so everyone there bore God's image. But more than that, oh, you see the subtleness in what Jesus is saying? Jesus is the exact imprint of God. He is God. And Jesus, in a sleight of hand, says to them, Hey, dummies, I'm God. You ought to be giving loyalty to me rather than seeking to undermine me. You ought to be loyal to who I am, to worship me. Now, of course, the the New Testament writers, the apostles, will use Jesus' teaching here to develop a fuller understanding of how Christians can coexist under a wicked government. You know, and, and we should do well to think more about this as Christians. As our culture and our government goes more and more secular and more and more uh, quite radical in its policies, we are going to continue to grow and live in days in which a government is evil and wicked. But notice how Jesus says that you can have loyalty to Him and still pay your taxes. You can still honor Him as King and exist in a government that is wicked. And of course, Paul writes about this in Romans 13. Peter in 1 Peter 3, if you want to read those passages, you'll see where the the writers of the New Testament develop this idea. Remember, the theocracy is going away. The temple is going to be destroyed. There's no longer going to be a Jewish nation. There's no longer going to be an Israel, a, a theocracy, a government that is ran by the church. It is going to be a a government ran by the secular people. How are Christians going to exist? Jesus is preparing the way for this new era of redemptive history. That for 2,000 years, Christians have wrestled and sought to try to understand how you and I can do this. Isaac Bacchus, a leading Baptist minister that fought for fought vigorously for religious freedom during the Revolutionary War here in America, he wrote this, that God hath appointed the ordinance of civil government for the defending of the poor as well as of the rich. And the civil rights and privileges and the work of the civil magistrate is to punish moral evils, Romans 13, to encourage moral virtue, Romans 13 without touching upon anything that infringes upon conscience or pretending to dictate and govern in the worship of the eternal God, which belongs only to Jesus Christ, the lawgiver and head of His church. See, Bacchus is saying, look, there is a time when we are to rebel, and that is when the government binds our conscience. Of course, many of us just experienced that during the COVID pandemic in 2020. 
Some of you were living in parts of the country that were closed and religious services were prevented from happening because of the civil government seeking to help mitigate the spread of COVID-19. And churches rebelled against that and says, no, the government has no right to come in and tell us how we will worship and when we will worship. Friends, this comes from Jesus' own teaching here, that we can be loyal to a government, but there comes a time when we can. But not to confuse the matter, uh, these religious leaders weren't concerned about Jesus' theology of magistrates, but whether or not they could trap him in such a way as to curse Caesar and thus get arrested. And they failed. I love, I love the, the, the sort of, look at verse 26. This is a wonderful verse to think about. Just, if you need something to, to, to give you joy this afternoon, uh, to, to just give you a smile, a little, little smirk, a little smile. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveled, or, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. Oh, friend, there is coming a day, there is coming a day when all the Stephen Hawkings of the world all the geniuses of the world, all the ones that think they've stumped us and God will be silent. In fact, there is a, one of the most horrific verses in all of your Bible. It comes in the book of Revelation. When John hears when that bowl of God's wrath is about to be poured out, There is silence in heaven for about a half hour. Oh, when the king comes, there'll be silence. Because he's coming victoriously. And every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. Well, Jesus is not only questioned about taxes from one party, but here enters the scene another party. There was really two political parties there in Israel, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Uh, Both of them believed the Bible. They were both conservative, so this wasn't like a a, a liberal conservative party. They were both conservative. The Pharisees, probably perhaps more fundamentalist than the Sadducees. In other words, the Pharisees liked to create a lot of rules through oral teaching. The Sadducees, they did not like oral teaching at all. Uh, They were men and women of the book. Right? They, were, they were Bible believers, and particularly the first five books of the Bible, what we know as the Torah or the Pentateuch. They, they were those five first books, and, and that's why you'll see them quote Moses often in here. They were, they were, hey, who's your favorite guy in the Old Testament? They would say Moses is our favorite guy. Now, now Luke helps us here. Look, look there with me as they enter the scene. Verse 27, then came to him some Sadducees. Those who deny that there is a resurrection. So you see, here's the context. The context is telling us this key will help us interpret the entire passage. So they come with a scenario in which they believe undermines the resurrection. They do not believe there is a resurrection from the dead. They do not believe the Old Testament taught this. They rejected the idea. Now, the Pharisees, they believed in the resurrection. They affirmed that. That's why you see that little phrase there at the end in verse 39. Then some of the scribes, which would have been Pharisees, said, Teacher, you've spoken well. You know, the Pharisees are like, oh, that was actually a pretty good answer. We enjoyed that. We agree with you, Jesus. 
So you see Jesus even, you know, beginning to pit his enemies against themselves. But the Sadducees come, and they come with this quite ridiculous story. And we don't have time to look at all the details in the Old Testament, but essentially it is the Leverite marriage. So the Leverite marriage was basically that if a, if a man died, his brother was to take his wife and have, get married and have children, and it would be that older brother's name that would then be perpetuated. The most famous story in your Bible is Ruth and Boaz, right? So if you go back and read Ruth, that was a Leverite marriage. Uh, Boaz took Elimelech's name and perpetuated it in Israel. And, um, and so that's what we see unfolding. So they come, they said, well, what if there's this guy and, um, and he marries this woman and then he dies and then his brother dies and his brother's so down. There's seven brothers. They all die. We've got Jesus trapped. Whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Now notice what Jesus does. He does two things. Number one, he, he confronts their ignorance. He confronts their ignorance. See, they think they've tripped up Jesus because they come with their own preconceived ideas about what eternal life is going to be like. They come and they say, okay, if there is a heaven, if there is a resurrection of the dead, this is what it's going to look like. It's going to look like a man married to his wife and they're going to continue and they're going to live forever, happily ever after. And Jesus says what? Look what he does. He bursts all of our bubbles. He confronts all of our wrong ideas in verse 34 and he says what? The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. Sons of this age just meaning you and I here in this era of redemptive history, but, verse 35, those who are considered worthy to attain the age, that age, the age of the resurrection, they, the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, verse 36 is the theological idea that, under, that supports this, for they cannot die anymore. So you have to understand, what is marriage? Well, marriage is God's design for the procreation of humanity, right? This is what marriage is. It is the union of one man and one woman for a lifetime so that they will what? Be fruitful and multiply. And Jesus says in eternity they're going to live forever. There's no need for procreation and therefore there is no marriage. Then that's point number one. Now notice then he, he develops it. Because they are equal to angels and are sons of God being sons of the resurrection. So what Jesus does is he says, hey fools, you don't know anything about the age of resurrection. And Jesus is then now giving us new revelation. Jesus is revealing to us knowledge that was not previously known in the Old Testament. Because he's the son of God, he is revealing more understanding, more knowledge about what eternity is going to be like. And he says, listen, there is no perpetuation of this. Now, we don't have time to look at all the verses. You can study this on your own. This doesn't mean that we don't know perhaps our spouse is in eternity or have some sort of relationship with children that are saved. None of that kind of stuff. So just be careful. We have to speak where the Bible speaks and shut up where the Bible is silent. And that would help us a lot, I think, as Christians, right? Is if we would just say, God didn't want me to know, and so he didn't tell me in his word. And just leave it at that. 
Leave it to the mystery of God. I don't, I don't know what it looks like, but we understand that there's some relationship. And I do want to say one other point here, just to dig at you all a bit. Verse 36. Notice what it says. Read it for yourself. Because they are equal to angels. Now, let me help you out here. He does not say that because they become angels. Brothers and sisters, we do not become angels when we die. We must guard against this language that is of this world, that does not have its theological basis in Scripture, that when someone dies, heaven gained another angel. That is theologically incorrect. God's redemptive people are equal to angels. They are not angels. We don't get wings We don't float around on clouds. We become sons and daughters of the King in His eternal kingdom. Uh, Brothers and sisters, I think it diminishes God and His Word when we confuse this particular matter. But Jesus makes emphatically clear that we are of equal standing. And the idea here is that angels are eternal beings and therefore we become eternal beings. Through regeneration, we receive eternal life, which we never die anymore. We, we'll live forever. That's why as Christians, we don't fear death. We're not afraid of death. Death is just a conduit to eternal life. But then Jesus goes on, and he gives a second main reason why there is a resurrection. And notice here, verses 37 through 40, he says, hey, you remember that passage about the bush? You think, well, that's kind of strange. Why did he say it like that? Well, Because there was no verses and chapter numbers like you and I have where Jesus could said, well, turn to Exodus chapter 4, verse 37. He didn't have that. He said, hey, guys, you remember that story about the bush? And, of course, they would have said, yes, that's our favorite book of the Bible. Remember, we love the Torah. We love Moses' writings. Yes, we're listening up. What did Moses say? And what he does here is he says, listen to what Moses says. Moses speaks in the present tense when he speaks about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He doesn't speak about, and we don't do that, right? When we think of our relatives, we don't speak about them in the present tense because what would happen is if we did that, people would think we're weird. We'd be like, are they still here with you? Um, are they in this room? You know, right? We, 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 well, hey, when so-and-so did this and they did that and this is all in sort of in the past tense because they're gone, of course. Um, But here Jesus affirms that, listen, even your Bible teaches you that there is a resurrection of the dead. Verse 38, now he is not not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. So Jesus says, listen, the resurrection is not a new idea. While we receive new revelation, he, he affirms this particular truth. And of course, Jesus silences them just as he did before. Well, notice here also in verses 41 through chapter 21, verse 4. Jesus turns the question on themselves. He says, okay, you guys asked me some hard questions. Now it's my turn. I want to ask you a really hard question. Now, this could have been a question of the day. Maybe one that the Pharisees were wrestling with or the Sadducees were struggling with. Uh, Perhaps it was a known question. Regardless, Jesus goes to the favorite book and the favorite chapter in all of the New Testament. So Psalm 110 is the New Testament writer's favorite 
chapter in all the Bible. This is the one that is often quoted by Jesus and his apostles. And he, he asked this question. It's, the question is quite, quite straightforward. David's son, the Messiah, the Christ, one of David's descendants, one of his children, it wasn't Solomon, it wasn't subsequently, when this Messiah comes, this king, this Davidic king, everybody's in agreement up to this point that he's asking this question to. Everybody agrees that the Messiah is going to be a son of David. What, what Jesus is presenting is how can you reconcile that he's a son of David, yet David refers to him as Lord? Right? Of course, we teach our children this. We teach our children all the time that when they... Uh, say something to an adult, they're to say, sir, ma'am, yes, sir, right? Well, we never do it in reverse, right? We don't say to our children, you know, yes, sir, no, sir, that would be weird, right? We don't do that. We don't, we don't go in the reverse. And so what Jesus is saying is, is Psalm 110 seems to be David saying yes, sir, to his own son. How can we reconcile these two? How can he be both his son and his Lord? This is the question at hand. Well, you and I understand what he's doing here. He is presenting himself as not merely a son of David, but David's greater son. That is to say that he is claiming to not only be human, but divine. This is what we affirm in the Nicene Creed. This is what we affirm through the Trinitarian creeds throughout church history, that he is fully God and fully man. That he's not half God, half man, some amalgamation, but that he is fully God and fully man. Or as R.C. Sproul would, would write, truly God and truly man. Not two natures, but one nature. Not two gods, but one God, as the later creeds reveal. Jesus here confronts these religious leaders by saying that, hey, I'm not just the Messiah. I'm also your God. I'm also the Lord. This is what Multirire once wrote. If Christ is not divine, then lay the book away. And every blessing faith resign that has so long been yours and mine Though many a trying day, forget the place of bended knee and dream no more of worlds to be. If Christ is not divine, go seal again the tomb. Take down the cross, redemption sign. Quench all the stars of hope that shine and let us turn and travel on across the light, the night that knows no dawn. Walter Meyer was simply getting at this point. If Jesus is not fully God and fully man as revealed in this text, then we might as well all pack it up and go home. There is no hope apart from a God who rules and reigns over all. And this is why Jesus warns His disciples in these final verses. In verses 45 through chapter 2, verse uh, 4, 21 verse 4 rather, Jesus here is warning against this phony religion that is presented in these disciples, or in these religious leaders. And it is a warning to us. And the main idea here is that do we truly live for Jesus? 
or are we just speaking out of the side of our mouths? In other words, there is a place for someone to claim Jesus as king, but not bow to him as Lord. And Jesus casts that out as a legitimate disciple. He gives these Pharisees as examples, exhibit A in his own case, as he begins to defend himself. And he says, look at these guys. They go around. They're hypocrites. They just want to show off all the time. You know, they go to church all dressed up, smiling faces. Their life is perfect. Everybody has it together. But inwardly, they're dead. They're phony. They're fakes. There's nothing to them. Hypocrites literally are just play actors. And maybe that's you this morning. Jesus offers here another way of total devotion. You see, these religious leaders wanted to impress others, and maybe that's you. You impress others by your religiosity, your knowledge of the Bible, your your attendance, Whatever it is that you point to, your money, how much you give. And Jesus pulls out this little old widowed lady who gave two copper coins. It's this one sixty-fourth of a day's wages, pennies, literally. And he says that this woman gave more than all the rest because she gave all that she had. And this lesson isn't a lesson about how you need to give more to church or anything like that. Jesus is saying, simply through illustration, if you are going to recognize him as king, then you must devote your entire life to him. Otherwise, you are no different than these frauds that sought to trap Jesus and trick him. You're no different than the religious leaders. In other words, Jesus is confronting you this morning and saying, if you read this story like you were on Jesus' side, like you were like, yeah, you get them, Jesus. You get those religious leaders. You get those scumbags. You miss the point of the story entirely. Because as we'll see in the weeks ahead, the story is really about us acting just like the religious leaders. Seeking to be more loyal to this world than loyal to Jesus. Seeking to go to God's Word with our own preconceived ideas rather than allowing God's Word to inform our ideas. Seeking to confuse the nature of Christ by denying His full divinity through our reckless living. Christ is calling you and I to a better way. He's calling us to a way of total devotion to Him and to no one else for His glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the grace that we have through Christ. And though we live a life often disloyal to You, disobedient to You, discouraged and dejected, we simply come to you and submit again to you. Refresh our resolve by the aid of the Holy Spirit. Help us to submit to Jesus as King for your glory.
for our good in Christ's name we pray. Amen.